Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So this morning in our Advent series, as we've been working through all of these titles given to Christ, we'll be looking at this morning the title of Everlasting Father. We've spent Advent looking at each one of these so far, right? We started with Wonderful Counselor. Last week we talked about the title of Mighty God. These are, these are names applied to Jesus. And the fact that these are names given to Jesus is clear from the beginning of, of verse 6, right? Where it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. There's going to be this coming Messiah who's going to be born, this child, this son who's going to be born, this coming Messiah. And we learn that this is Jesus, is the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. He is, there's this child will be given to God's people. And all through Isaiah are many different descriptions about the life, the ministry, the birth even. Isaiah 7, 14, that he'll be born of a virgin. All of these prophecies coming to us from the book of Isaiah. And so this is, this is one of these passages. And these are the names that are going to be given to this one who is to come, this Messiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But for some of us, that third title might cause us a little bit of pause because this son that's coming is going to be called the everlasting father. Hopefully, if you're paying attention uh, very much on Sunday mornings, at some point I've made reference to and talked about the reality of a Trinitarian God, that as Christians, we worship a God who is Trinity, uh, if you're in the kids club, CYF, we do a catechism question and we, we go through many different questions. We've gotten eventually to the question of, and I'll see if any of the kids are paying attention enough to know it. They probably aren't, so I don't want to put them up to it. But one of the questions we get to is, are there more gods than one? And the answer is, no, there is only one true God. The second question then is, in how many persons does this one true God exist? And they say, Three, and they, who are they? God the, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Nina knew it. Say a good job. She's there. How many gods are there? There is only one true God. And how many persons does this God exist? Three: God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So Christianity is this unique religion in that we worship a trinity. We worship a Trinitarian God, a God who is one in being, but three in person. This doctrine recognizes that there is just one true God. Coming out of Judaism, a monotheistic religion, mono meaning one, theistic, talking about God, belief in one God, a monotheistic religion. And so, but yet this creator God, this one true God exists in three persons. 
And those persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in order for this to make any sense, we have to first understand there's a difference between being and personhood. Lots of things have being. Um, rocks have being. The pew that you're sitting on has being. This music stand has being. It is a thing. We all are human beings, right? But we also have personality. Not every being has personality. Not every being has personhood. Rocks don't have a personality. They don't have a conscious. They aren't a conscious thing. This music stand, if it could talk, it might say lots of things, but it doesn't. It's just a thing. It has being, but no personhood. We as human beings, we are one being. We are one person. So there's those distinctions there. And what we have in the Trinity, it's a little beyond our ability to grasp, but he is one in being, one God, that exists in three persons, expressed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I've put up on our screens, a. Um, this is called the Trinity Shield. This is a way to think about what the reality of the Trinity. And I put up there in Latin to confuse everyone, and then I put it up in English. It says, uh, there it is, Potter is the Father, uh, Phileas the Son, Spiritus Sanctus at the bottom was the Holy Spirit, Deus in the middle, named for God, and it said the Father non est or is not. So what we see in this Trinitarian shield here is this one being of God, the Father you see is God. The Son you see is God. The Holy Spirit is God. All three of them, it's right to call them God. And yet, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. So you can this, this, it's, a, it's a, picture, a picture, an illustrated way of trying to understand what we see in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Each is God, but yet each is distinct. Now, this... Reality of the Trinity is not just something somebody stayed up too late one night and ended up drawing some crazy picture. It is the reality that comes to us from Scripture. Trinity is not some doctrine that was just created because I don't, we were bored and, and, and whatever. We, we just thought, let's make this interesting and have a Trinity. It's what's, what's uh, spoken clearly to us from the Scripture. It's clear that there is only one God. We have the... the, uh, the the Jews would say, you know, there is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, the Ten Commandments come to us and they say, you shall have no other God before me. He is the only one true God. And yet as we go through the Bible, we see all these different places where Jesus refers to the Father as God. Jesus is referred to as God. The Holy Spirit is regarded as God. Each of them fulfilling different distinct roles, yet sharing in the being of God. And so the, the Trinity is a doctrine that has come to us out of necessity of putting all of the parts together in what the Bible speaks of. It's a doctrine that was experientially lived by the church in that here they are with Jesus we have the baptism of Jesus, right, where he's lowered down into the water by John the Baptist, who was prophesied in our passage this morning from Zechariah's father, as the father John the Baptist, put down in the water. And what do we see? Jesus is there. The voice speaks from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The voice is of the father. Jesus is lowered down. And when he comes up, what happens? We see the spirit 
like a dove. The spirit is not a dove, but it comes down like a dove and lands upon Jesus. There's a fluttering. And we see there in that picture this reality of of three distinct persons, three distinct operations, yet we still confess that there is, we don't have three gods, we have one God. So I know that's a little teaching. Welcome to Advent at First Christian Church. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. But there's a reason why I want to talk about this, because if you pay attention, right, to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, this third title says the Messiah, the Son who is coming, is going to be called Everlasting Father. Well, it, it, how, how can that be? If the Father is not the Son, how then can this Son who is going to be coming be called the Father? That, that's, there's something, there's something that, that should make us pause. Is, is our theology getting all messed up? We, don't, we, we want to be careful with our Trinitarian doctrine of, of what is being spoken to us here. Isn't that getting these persons all messed up? And so... I say all of that because I think then it brings light to what is meant by this term of calling the Son the everlasting Father. What is meant by this term everlasting Father? First of all, it is not meant in the Trinitarian sense. So all of that that I talked about, that the, this usage of the term everlasting Father is not used in the Trinitarian sense. Now, hopefully, uh, if I've done any good work with you, your, your first response to me is, well, Darren, I know you say that, but prove it, okay? And that's what I want you to say. Well, it's nice that you claim that the everlasting Father there isn't used in the Trinitarian sense, but can you prove it? How do you know that this is not in the Trinitarian sense? Well, when you do a word study for Father in your Bible, Father is used a countless amount of time when it is countable, but it's used a, a lot of times, the word Father. But if you flip back, if you have your Bible out still, to Isaiah 63, there's a really interesting use of the word Father. Isaiah chapter 63, and looking at verse 16, you'll see the word of Father here used twice. Isaiah chapter 63 is on 740 in your pew Bible. says this, For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, from of old is your name. Two uses there. You see them both, Father? There's one that you are, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us. And then you, O Lord, are our father. Really hard to say R and R backwards. It's like R, our father, R, our father. Anyway, anyone else thinks it's hard? Okay, never mind. Father is used twice here, right? And so in this first instance, it's just you are speaking generically to God. You are our Father. Could be referring to possibly, I mean, they didn't have a concept of the Trinity in Isaiah's time. It was a reality that was there, but they wouldn't have necessarily recognized it in its fullness as we know it today. But this last reference here, you, O Lord, are our Father. That Lord there, you notice how it's all in caps, right? That's it's spelled different. It's kind of a funny way to write Lord. And if you've been around the Bible very much, you know that when Lord is spelled out all in caps, a very specific Hebrew name is behind that. It's the tetragrammaton, the, 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 four, the, the main title for God, Yahweh. Whenever you see Lord in all capital letters, it's referring to this one creator God, Yahweh. 
And it's saying, Yahweh, you, O Lord, Yahweh are our Father. You, O Lord, are our Father. So in this text, when we see this usage of the term Father, it is applying it to the being of God. Not specifically the Father of the Trinity that we see, but the being of God. In a very real way, the, the one being of God could be referred to as Father because He is the one through whom everything exists. He is the Creator God. He is the Father of all things. So when we, we can refer to this being of God in this way, as they do here in Isaiah 63, 16. This Yahweh, this one true God, is Father, the being of Him. Do you understand the distinction? That's kind of tough, but I hope, there, I'm going somewhere with this. This being of God can be referred to as Father. In Genesis 1-1, right, we have in the beginning God. And what's being communicated to us there is this reality. Before there was anything, there was God. And God then is the Father, this one true God, is the Father of everything. Father is often used this way in John 8 40, as, as, the, as the one who begins or the creator of, John 8, 44, calls Satan the father of lies. What's meant there is that everything that every lie has its origination in Satan. So there's this usage of the word father as the originator of. And so this one being of God referred to here as father. And we use that word many times that way. So when we jump back into Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, what do we hear? That this child who's going to be born, this son who's going to be given, is, is this one creator God, this being of God in flesh. The, the father of everlasting. You could turn that term around instead of saying everlasting father. You could say father of eternity. This one being, this creator God is going to enter into time. The father of eternity is going to enter time himself. So when it calls him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, it isn't confusing the roles of the Trinity. It's saying Jesus really is. This coming Messiah will be not a lesser God. He won't be uh, an elevated man like, say, you know, just somebody who's really impressed God and God decided, you know what? I really like you and we're going to elevate you to the place of, 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 of my son. Um, he's, not, he's not some uh, spiritual offspring of God up in heaven somewhere who's less than God, but a really highly exalted person. He will be called everlasting father. This, this eternal God who has existed from eternity past and will exist to eternity future puts on flesh. Jesus at Advent, at the coming, at the incarnation is this true God putting on flesh. Not less than God, not almost God, not God-like, but God himself, everlasting Father, the creator of all things, is going to enter into creation. It's exactly what John is telling us in the beginning of his gospel. So they go to the gospel of John, famous passage, just beautiful in its description of this very reality of Jesus, the word, was with God and was God. 
He was with him and he was him. In the beginning, John 1, 1, page 1053 of your pew Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So this Word, this one who was with God, who also was God, all things were made through him. If everything is made through you, that means you were not made. Christ is eternally God. This coming Messiah, everlasting Father, was not created. All things were created through him. He's separate from creation. This everlasting Father is this one true creator God in flesh. It's exactly the direction John is taking us. The word was with God. The word was God. Everything was made through this word. And you jump down to verse 4. In, or not four, verse 14. And the word became flesh. There's the incarnation. This one through whom all things were made. Time itself made through this one. This word became flesh. Dwelt among us. Tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. The everlasting Father, he's called this, he's able to be called this because all things in time, eternity itself, made through him, that one creator over all things puts on flesh. The creator enters into creation. It's, it's boggling to the mind that this everlasting Father, this God over all things, would condescend to enter into his creation. That's what we see in the incarnation. The everlasting father, meaning the creator of all things, comes into creation. The wondrous reality that's communicated to us is that the maker of time enters time. The maker of time, setting everything in motion, enters into that motion. He began all of life, begins time itself, and at just the right moment, in the fullness of time, as Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, in the fullness of time, at just the right time, he enters into the world. He must be doing something. Starts time, and then at this fullness of time, at just the right moment, so it's communicated to us there, he enters into this world. He must be doing something. That's exactly what we see in the incarnation. The life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He performs his perfect will. The one who is outside of time, bigger than time, enters time and, and doesn't have things go wrong. He's working on his schedule. He is doing what he wants to do. He is performing his holy will according to his time. How is he able to do that? He is the father of time. Everlasting father enters time to work his plan. Ephesians chapter 1, beautiful passage, speaking about this very reality. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, it's on page 1159 of your pew Bible. Looking at verses 7 through 12, says this about Jesus. In him, meaning Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, here's this term again, for the fullness of time 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. How is he able to do that? Well, he's the everlasting father. He's the father of time. He's the one who's started this whole thing off, who's going to wrap this whole thing up. And all along the way, he is performing his ministry. He does this throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. And Jesus goes to the cross at the precise moment he planned, resurrects three days later in victory over death. You know, God's not the Wizard of Oz. Like, I love living with a with a cultural narrative over the span of your life. I mean, I remember being a kid and watching The Wizard of Oz and being freaked out by the flying monkeys as a child, you know, and, and how scary the Wicked Witch was, you know, and then she melts, and I was, did I give away the plot? Spoiler alert on the movie from the book from, I don't even know what, 20s or something. Spoiler alert, the witch dies, okay? So, uh, but, you know, you live with this narrative, and all, I always thought that The Wizard was, was amazing because... But how upsetting it was because he answers all the problems of the tin man, the scarecrow, and the lion, but Dorothy never really is helped. You know, she doesn't, that's, that's the way it kind of, not helped by the wizard. It's only later that I figure out the wizard was really just a fool kind of all along. It wasn't until I got to an adult that I realized the gifts that he's giving, this, does anyone else know the story of the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> the gifts that he's giving them aren't really answers to any of their problems. He gives the scarecrow a diploma, but he doesn't give him a brain, but he tells him you're already smart. And he gives the, the, the lion, the cowardly lion, a badge and says, you're already, he doesn't make him courageous, but he gives him a badge and all of a sudden he thinks he is, he is courageous. And the, the tin man, he points out to him, he gives him that fake little heart and he realized the wizard's doing nothing. But as a kid, you don't get that. But, you know, the, the wizard, at the end, he's got this plan for Dorothy and they're going to fly away in this hot air balloon, right, and get back to Kansas. And what happens? Toto jumps out of the basket, and she hops off to get Toto, and it's too late. The balloon's already gone, and the wizard cannot stop what's going on. It's too late. The wizard's, the wizard's remedy is, has gone past them. And sometimes I think it's like we, we almost feel like life, like God is in the hands of the Wizard of Oz almost, that at any moment he might just lose control, and it's all just gone. It's too late. Toto jumped out, and I went after him, and now the air balloon's gone, and I guess, I guess God doesn't know what he's, he's like the Wizard of Oz. It's, uh, he's gone too far, and now there's no turning back. God is not the Wizard of Oz. He doesn't just guess the best plan of action. He is the everlasting Father. And when we see the life of Christ, it is the working out of this everlasting Father working things exactly according to his plan. His plan is not thwarted. What does this mean for us? Well, there's three practical applications from this. The reality, the maker of time entering time to us. The first thing is that when good things come, we should be thankful to the giver of all good gifts. And I just, I, I, sometimes I skip saying this one and I just think, I need to, you know, when we just got done celebrating Thanksgiving, there, the reason why we celebrate Thanksgiving and give thanks is there's someone to give thanks to. That every good gift we have, it's on the front of our board for months now, every good gift comes from above. We were at the, the dance recital, a glorious dance recital with my star dancer. She's gone back to the nursery. She didn't hear me say that. Uh, 
But, you know, and Darla put a post out about, you know, four years ago, about this time, she was going through, we were just getting ready to Christmas Eve services were, tra were traumatic for us because Jana was not doing well. And, and that was this, that's the whole season. We go up to Des Moines for, to find out she has this congenital heart defect. And here we sit four years later. God has been very merciful and, merciful and, merciful, merciful and gracious. And that, what, a, what a gift that is. And we should give thanks. God works all things out according to his time. And so we should be truly thankful when good things come. We should be thankful to God who does these good things. However, that isn't the way we always see it. And it's often we don't get it the way we want to. And when we don't, because Jesus is the everlasting father, because God is the creator of all things, working things according to his timeline, when we don't get it the way we want it, we should be and we can be patient. Patience is a wonderful Christian virtue. The reality that, no, this wasn't on my timeline, but God has not lost control. God is not the Wizard of Oz already flying away in the balloon and now it's too late. It must be over. We can be patient. There are many times that we see the value and good that would come if things would just go a certain way and then they don't. And oftentimes that leaves us despairing, discouraged, depressed, upset. Something's, you know, this is, we've lost our chance. The hot air balloon is flying away and we'll never get back to Kansas now. That isn't God. He's the everlasting father. He's working his purposes. We must remember who our God is. Often we've prayed for loved ones, looking for a new job. And it's far easier in those moments to give into feelings that God doesn't know what he's doing. When your job doesn't go your way, when your health doesn't make the improvements that you want it to, when your loved ones persist in a bad course, the one who knows this God can patiently endure. Because God, the creator of time, has not forgotten what time it is. He knows what time it is. And he's continuing to do his work. We can be patient. And that we can then, thirdly, we can thank when we good things happen, be patient when they don't go the way we want them to. And we can, when things go the way we don't want them to, we can trust him. When things go the way we don't want them to, Often our response when this happens is to think something got out of the hands of the Father of eternity. And we want answers. And often no answers. Why did this, not only did not the good thing I want happen, but the bad thing I didn't want to happen went ahead and happened. The diagnosis that I did not want is the one that I went ahead and got anyway. What can we do? Has the, has the Father of eternity lost track of time? No, he has not. We want answers. We don't get answers to those questions, but it isn't as though we have no answers, okay? Not getting answers to the questions that you have doesn't mean there are no answers to really good questions. God has promised to give us what we need, and what we need more than anything else is God. What we need more than anything else is more of Him, and this is what He has done through the Incarnation. This is what He has done. God the Son put on flesh fulfills the eternal plan to rescue sinners through his life and his death. If you are his through repentance and faith in Christ's work, you can be guaranteed. This is a guarantee. God has not last, lost track of time with you. God isn't wondering what's going. God has not last track, lost track of time. But you can be assured that he is working right on his schedule to accomplish his good purposes for every one of his children. 
to play out the way we want it to, the way we expect it to, the way we thought it would, not necessarily. But God is working for, for his, to accomplish his good purposes for every one of his children. When we get what we don't want, we can trust him. When we get good things, we can thank him. When, those things are, when, when good things are delayed, we can be patient and trust him. And when bad things come, we can trust him. We can remember Romans 8, 28, that God does work, not in some light, airy way, but in a very real, tangible, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We're thankful when good comes, patient when it is delayed, and trusting when even the things that we don't want come our way. Why? The everlasting Father has not lost track of time. He knows where you are. He knows what's going on in life. And he will not fail or disappoint those who are his in the final analysis. Let's pray. Father, give us help this morning. The various struggles that exist across this congregation, the various trials, the various disappointments. We come to Advent, Father, and, and we know, we come to the incarnation. <laughs> we don't have it within us. And so, God, give us eyes to see that we might rejoice that help has come from outside of us. A rescuer has come. The everlasting Father has entered time itself. And he, you, have not lost track of time. Help us, God, to be thankful, patient, and trusting that you, the great God of all creation, will not fail those who are yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.